0: Hello baseball fans, welcome to Sully Baseball, this is the podcast we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this from a mobile Sully Baseball studio, also known as my car, on the 29th day of October 2017. And I'm doing this pulling off of the 110 freeway because your pal Sully wants to see how close to Dodger Stadium. I can get. I am now pulling off on Stadium Way and I'm pulling past a sign that says, Welcome to Dodgers Stadium. This is the home of the National League Champion Los Angeles Dodgers, who will be playing tonight. It's a very, very foggy day here in Chavez Ravine. And up, I, I am pulling up and there are big gates here, big ass gates. I was hoping I could drive and pull up and walk around the exterior of the stadium, but alas, I can't. You know, this is the disadvantage of having a stadium up here on a mountain or up on a hill as it is for Dodger Stadium. If this were AT&T Park in San Francisco, if this were Petco Park, if this were Fenway Park, if this were Yankee Stadium... If this were, I mean, as far as I know, you know, if, if this were uh, a Minute Maid Park in Houston, I could wander around. I could walk up to the stadium, sort of walk around it. But because Dodger Stadium is up on a damn mountain, I can't do that. And I wasn't sure if I could. That's why I started the podcast early here in the car. I'm going to go up to the Welcome to Dodger Stadium sign. I'm going to do the rest of this from there. It's funny. I really was starting to think about that, is how many stadiums can you not just walk up to in baseball? And I, I'm going through in my head. You could walk right up to Fenway. You can walk right up to Wrigley. You could walk right up, to, as I said, to AT&T. You know, I, I'm the... I think you can walk right up to Anaheim. I could be wrong about that. The only ones that I... I, I've not been to every single stadium, but I've been to enough to know that most of them are in some sort of centrally located place that you can come right up to when there's no game going on. Now, I'm not 100% sure about Kansas City. I've been to a game at Kansas City, but I've never been to the park when there's no game being played. You think about stadiums that exist basically in the middle of a parking lot the way that people thought stadiums were supposed to be when the urban planning was going on during the 50s and 60s, when car culture was going through the roof, everyone had a car, people moving out to the suburbs, the idea of going to a game via public transportation was something that was put into the dumpster, and you had to think about, okay, first and foremost, we got to have a parking, sp- parking lot. And in the middle of the parking lot, you would have a stadium. This stadium, Dodger Stadium, right up the hill from here, is the grand experiment of what stadiums were supposed to be like. It's one of the oldest stadiums, and one of the reasons why I hope they never tear it down, because baseball stadium should reflect the history of the game as well. It's one of the reasons why I wished one of the cookie cutter stadiums would be kept. I would have preferred the stadium in St. Louis, the old Bush Stadium, the circular Bush Stadium. I wish they'd kept that. But like most stadiums, you can come right up to. Uh, Oakland, you can't because it's in the middle of a parking lot. This one here, Dodger Stadium, you can't, because in the middle of the parking lot. A few years ago, when I was doing some work in San Diego, I wanted to go up and do one from, I did one from within uh, uh, Petco Park. You could walk right up to the the wall at Petco Park, even when there's no game on. And I wanted to do one from what is now called Qualcomm Stadium, it used to be Jack Murphy Stadium. And that is, was the home of the Chargers, at least then, but now they're playing in L.A. Doesn't it feel like they're going to eventually go back to San Diego, like this is kind of a hostage situation? Anyway, but I couldn't get to old Jack Murphy Stadium because the gates were all up there. And there's something psychological about that that I wonder is, A, from a different time, but like, is this something that baseball keeps in mind when it finds places to plop a new stadium? Do they want to keep an accessibility to the stadium, even when there's no game there? People are always walking around and poking their head into AT&T Park in San Francisco, or as I said, Petco in San Diego. When I was in last winter, I was up in New York, and I went to City Field, and I went to Yankee Stadium, and it was the middle of December. It was, believe me, was, there was nothing going on there. But there were, you could see Met fans milling about and taking pictures. And there were like some museum stuff you could walk in. And the new Yankee Stadium had a few Yankee fans milling about there and wanted to buy some shirts at the store. And it's interesting that that seems to be part of the culture of new stadiums to be inviting to allow people to interact with the stadium, even when there's no game going on. Now, Dodger Stadium, to be fair, does on many days, and maybe I just got there too early. It's, early, it's, it's before 10 o'clock in the morning. And they have their uh, gift shop that's open there. And you can walk around the, the upper deck of the, of the stadium when there's no game going on. And that's pretty cool. But it is on the top of a mountain. For those of you who have never been to a game at Dodger Stadium and tend to be, you know, make fun of Dodger fans for showing up late and leaving early. I used to do the same thing, thinking it had to do with the fickleness and the the front runner status of a lot of L.A. fans. But as I've covered in this podcast, it's hard to get to Dodger Stadium. I would argue it's probably the hardest stadium to get to in baseball. There's only a couple of roads off of the highway that lead up to there. The traffic is always bumper to bumper trying to get into the stadium. That even if you get there with a lot of time to spare, you have to park the car and then walk up another series of hills or down a series of hills just to get to the stadium. I've left with a lot of time to spare. I'm in Pasadena. Pasadena is right down the 110 from... Dodger Stadium. It takes me, normally, it takes me about 10 minutes to drive from my driveway past the stadium way, which leads you to Dodger Stadium. And I've been late getting to my seat. You know, I've been late because of the traffic and because of the parking and everything like that. It is a really inconvenient stadium to get to, and I'm hard-pressed going through my little Rolodex in my brain to think of a of a stadium that is, well, more inconvenient to get to than Dodger Stadium in terms of getting in, getting out. There's no trains that go there. There is a bus. With the bus, I took the bus. It's a pain in the ass. And it doesn't have the accessibility of a lot of the other stadiums. I want them to keep it. I want them to keep it. There's a lot of tradition there. There's a certain timelessness there. You go there, you can picture Sandy pitching. You can picture Garvey playing there, Hershiser, Gibson, Valenzuela, and now Kershaw and all of them. There's a connection there, which you will not get if they build a downtown stadium. And it is an example of when they played in Ebbets Field the, in Brooklyn, the shape of the stadium was dictated by the streets, and this, they said, well, what if we were completely free? We could just design a stadium that is not confined by any external factors, and you've got a beautifully designed stadium like Dodger Stadium. It should be kept, but its inaccessibility is showing its head this morning. You know there's no gate around AT&T Park. There's no gate around City Field. When I was in Chicago doing a show in 2004, it was the middle of January or 2003, sorry, like any of you were going to double check when I did a show in Chicago. And I just went right to Wrigley and walked around. There was no there was nothing's stopping me. And here, there's a locked gate. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about a couple of things here. Um, I can't avoid talking about the Uli-Guriel controversy uh, because it's real and because it's, you know, it, it's raised its ugly face, literally, in the middle of the game. For those of you who don't know, uh, Guriel, the, the first baseman for Houston, hit a home run off of Hugh Darvish. Hugh Darvish is of Japanese and Iranian ancestry, you know, like so many players in baseball. And he looks primarily, he looks Japanese. He looks more Japanese than he looks Iranian. And Gurriel hit a huge home run off of him. And 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 Darvish had a terrible game. And while in the dugout, Gurriel did the whole putting your fingers on the side of your eyes and stretching them back to make them look Asian and then yelled a a slur in, in Spanish Which is uh, Basically the equivalent of Calling him a chink And well, I don't know the exact word but it's the, it's the Spanish equivalent of that And you know here, Here's the deal everyone There's always cameras on you There's cameras capturing everything There's cameras capturing everything in the stands Let alone in the In the dugout after you just hit a home run In the World Series so anything you do, it's like, oh, I didn't think someone was gonna see it. Yeah, they're gonna see it. They're gonna see it. Someone's gonna catch it. And do you know want? You know, I love that there's like, oh, he didn't mean any disrespect, or he didn't mean to offend anyone. What are you talking about? You did a you did a racist gesture. You yeah, know, you did. That's not. It's not even. In it's it's not even in question. You did, and that sucks. And he's being suspended now. I'm going to be a little bit on, a little sympathetic for Rob Manfred here. There are some people who are really um, dogpiling on Rob Manfred that his suspension was for five games of the regular season rather than games in the World Series. Now, here's where I think, and, and I do get that there are some people, well, why, are you, why aren't you suspending him in the World Series? Instead of in the in the regular season, that would have more teeth. That would show more. That would show you know a a little stronger on the commissioner's side. I get that. Now the one thing I think is kind of bullish is when a little little bit of bullshit is when the the rationale is well, it would be too punitive if you did in the World Series, but so we'll do it in the regular season. That's like saying we're 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 going to come down on this, but not too hard. I thought that was kind of that was kind of some weak sauce. But I will say this. Rob Manfred is the commissioner of baseball as hired by the owners. He is not the dictator of baseball. And you know and I know that the players association, the union, whenever there is a suspension of any kind, the player has the right a collectively bargained for right to appeal. And if Gurriel decided to appeal the suspension, then he would be allowed to play until the appeal is heard. And that was in game three of the World Series. And setting up the arbitration for an appeal is not something you can do the next day. So you would have had him playing games 4 and 5 of the World Series, which could have been the last two games of the season. So essentially, probably the earliest this could happen is before Game 7 of the World Series. And at that point, A, the World Series could be over, and B, uh, this is not what baseball wants to be dealing with. Well, before the Game 7 of the World Series, let's get the ruling on the racist Gesture made by Gurriel before game, during Game 3 of the World Series. Because of the appeal process, the appeal probably would not have been heard until after the World Series anyway. Now, you may not like the appeal process, and you may have you know thoughts about the issues of a suspension, but it's there. And you don't want to set a precedent of, you get this suspension and you can't appeal it. Because that's the sort of thing, whether or not you believe he should be suspended or not, and I do, but I also believe that when you have a bargain for and a negotiated uh, structure that allows for appealing of suspensions, you can't drop that arbitrarily because then you've got to start to say, okay, what are the situations where they don't have the right to appeal? And that has to be collectively bargained for as well. So Manfred doing the suspension in the regular season may be too light a penance for some of you. And I get that. And you could say, hey, PEDs, you could have the suspension in the playoffs, but not in the, you know, you've seen players who've been suspended through the postseason, like Melky Cabrera a few years ago. Uh, But to be fair, Cabrera had the chance to come back, and the Giants chose not to put him on the team. That was more of a team decision than a league suspension. But, look, it it's a tough thing. It's a hard thing to, to work around, especially a commissioner who doesn't want to start an open war with the Players Association. And this way, there is a suspension, but you avoid... Having the big mess that's here there's, there's a much easier way to avoid this mess Don't do racist stuff It's not that hard And you can taunt a pitcher if you want Say, hey, I hit your weak-ass fastball you call, you, you call yourself an ace, I just hit the shit out of that ball There's all sorts of things you can do That don't involve race That you can do to taunt another player Who you just took downtown it's not that hard. Ask yourself, is the thing I'm doing based entirely on his, his appearance, his ethnicity, his race, whatever? If not, find another thing. Just do that. I do it all the time. I find reasons to mock people that have nothing to do with who their parents are or the shapes of their eyes. It's easy to do. And I've heard, you know, some of the excuses i heard, one person actually was trying to say, well, you know, he's from Cuba, maybe in Cuba they don't understand that that's not the right thing to do here. I said, wait a minute, he played in Japan for a couple of years. So I, I think it probably crossed his mind. And plus he yelled a slur. So, I mean, that's a bunch of nonsense. And also... You know, if you're, I don't want to hear anyone talk about political correctiveness and we're being too sensitive. I see you see that on Twitter. It's like, you know, we're being we're overly sensitive. It's a non-issue. First of all, people always say it's, you know, political correctiveness and oversensitivity when it's not directed at them. Have you ever noticed that? Well, it's basically like, hey, it's not directed at me, so I'm not offended. So therefore, why are you offended? it's become one of those kind of arguments and one of those points in an argument when people start saying one of two things that I completely just sort of zone out and say, do you know what? I'm not listening to this person's argument because they've got nothing. They're just flailing around like a a moron. It's when people start to do the whole, in my day, things were better. Uh, Whenever people go to in my day, I zone out because everyone thinks their day was the best. And so I just basically think this is just confirmation bias and I'm not listening. And then when people complain about political correctiveness, which is, I guess, a subset of in my day, I also zone out. Because it's basically saying, hey, in my day I used to say really insensitive and sometimes racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever it is, things. And nobody seemed to care. And now people seem to care. They're too sensitive now. No, I think everyone always cared. It's just they didn't have a voice to speak up and say, hey, that's that's shitty. Don't say that. Don't do that. You know, oh, we used to make jokes like that all the time in the locker room and no one seemed to mind. Yeah, they did. People minded. People minded. They just didn't say anything. Now people are saying things. And you're now mad that you can't say all these crappy things. Now, I'm, I'm sure I've said many things that are politically incorrect that if I look back, I go, man, that's a shitty thing to do. That's a shitty thing to say. Let's improve. Let's be better. When people complain about political correctiveness, what they're basically saying is, man, I wish I could say shitty things with impunity. And I can't. And that makes me sad. Wah. Well, get over it. Get over it. Or maybe we'll make this compromise. If you're gonna do it, don't do it when there's cameras and millions of people watching you. Is that so hard to do? Well, there's a certain amount of poetic justice that happened, which was Guriel was not suspended. Oh, there's a truck starting up right nearby me. Guriel was not suspended, but he had a terrible game. So Dodger fans should be happy, because there were some Dodger fans I know who were upset that, oh, wait, He's gonna be suspended, but he still gets to play in the World Series and he's been hitting the snot out of the ball. Well, guess what? He went 0 for 3 with a strikeout and grounded into a double play. So there you go. There's a little bit of justice. He wasn't suspended, but he hurt the Astros chance of winning. Yesterday was one of those games, six to two was the final, that when people glance at it, it's gonna be another one of those games that when people glance at it, they won't realize what a tight game it was, but man, you had a point where you had a pitcher throwing a no-hitter into the sixth inning, dealing, and the other pitcher, you could argue, was more dominant, as Charlie Morton retired 14 batters in a row at one point, and remember earlier this year, Rich Hill threw a nine-inning no-hitter, and but it was no score at the end of nine, so he came out in the 10th and let up a home run and lost the game. I was reminded of that yesterday with Wood throwing a no-hitter into the sixth inning. And with two outs in the sixth inning, he let up a home run to Springer to make it one nothing. Oh, birds flying past me. I'm not even going to edit that out. And Morton, who was a huge question mark before Game 7 of the ALCS between the Yankees and the Astros, dominated the Yankees in his five innings there and pitched like an absolute ace into the seventh inning of last night's game. It was a one-to-one game going into the ninth. And then it happened. Giles. Now, I'm not going to blame Hinch for going to Giles, even though he's been not good at all this postseason. But there comes a point you say, hey, look it. We've got to see if we can rely on this guy. And it's a one-one game. Ninth inning, he is nominally one of my best relievers. Let's see if he can get us through the ninth inning here. Now he still had, um, you know, several other pitchers, including oh, who the hell was the pitcher he brought? I think Will, not Will Harris. Who, man? Do I have to go um, Musgrove? Thank you. Now he couldn't use Peacock. He knew that, but Musgrove he knew was available. Is Luke Gregerson hurt? Because he hasn't pitched this whole World Series yet. I you know. Francisco uh, uh, Liriano is available. Not sure you're going to bring him in there. I said, All right, here's my nominal closer. Let's see what we got. From the first batter, you could tell he had nothing. And I was like, I was saying to the TV, and this is, I'm rooting for the Dodgers because I want this to come back here. Um, I was saying, Take him out now. He doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. And his relief performance was grotesque. He didn't retire a batter. You might as well have not have brought him in. He couldn't give you one-third of an inning. And put Musgrove in a terrible situation. You know, 1-1 game became 2-1, became 3-1, became 6-1. And final was 6-2. You know, Alex Bregman had an amazing game defensively. No one's going to remember that. No one's going to remember Charlie Morton's great game. Charlie Morton basically, basically pitched the Astros to a point where they should be one win away from winning the World Series. Instead, Giles came in and imploded. And there comes a point where you've seen this happen, where relief pitchers who have been reliable during the regular season are in a terrible slump in the postseason, and you just can't turn to them. And as, as managers... You've seen times when the managers do turn to them, even though it's clear the pitcher is in mid-meltdown, like Brad Lidge in 2007, like Calvin Schiraldi in 1986 with the Red Sox, like byung Kim with the Arizona Diamondbacks in 2001, um, like Jose Valverde in uh, 2012 with the Tigers, like Brad Lidge again, In 2009, with the Phillies. In the case of Lidge in 2009, Byung Young Kim in 2001, Valverde in 2011. In each one of those cases, the teams eventually mothballed their closer. You know, Brantley didn't turn to Kim after he let up the home run to uh, uh, Scott Brocious. You know, he went to when, now, Game 6 of that World Series was a blowout, but in Game 7, he would rather turn to Randy Johnson on no day's rest than to Kim. You saw that when the, Dodge, when the, the Phillies were in the World Series in 2009, they tried to use everyone but Brad Lidge in closer situations, and it still came back to bite him in the ass. And I remember one of the things that was said when the Tigers won the pennant in 2012 is they were in the World Series and nobody knew who the closer was. Eventually they were using Phil Koch, but sometimes that happens. Sometimes you got to say, look at whatever's happening, he's in a funk. Even his best moment, his six-out save against the Red Sox to clinch the Division Series at Fenway Park included letting up an inside-the-park home run to Raphael Devers. You know, there's a reason why Hinch let McCullers finish out the, uh, the Game uh, 7 of the ALCS against the Yankees. There's a reason that he leaned on Brad Peacock in Game 3 of the World Series. Because Jaws doesn't have it. And he gave him an audition say, Okay, get us through this inning and, and put us in that position and it was a catastrophe. And at this point there's only there's a minimum of two and a maximum of three games left. And the Astros have a ton of pitchers in their bullpen who they're just gonna have to turn to other than Giles. You can Giles has to be a mop up man at this point. I mean, you saw a little bit happen with the Yankees and Della When they saw Batansis just was in mid-meltdown, they got to turn to other pitchers now. You know, we'll lean harder on Chad Green. The Astros cannot turn to Giles because at this point, this series is at a situation where we've seen this. We're four games in. It have been four very competitive games. Each game could have gone either way. The Dodgers could have swept this series. So could have the Astros. And it's 2-2. Now, the path to a Game 7 is pretty easy. Clayton Kershaw is pitching tonight. Clayton Kershaw is a Hall of Fame pitcher who looked terrific in his first game. Justin Verlander is pitching Game 6 for the Astros. He also is a Hall of Fame pitcher who has looked terrific this postseason. So if you look up and you say, if Kershaw wins his game and Verlander wins his game, then we're looking at a game seven. And if a game seven comes around and you're not 100% sure who the pitcher is, would it be Darvish? Would it be Hill? Hell, would it be Wood? Or would it be a combination? Say, okay, everyone's going to face you know, nine batters. I don't know. I don't know. And neither do you. But it could very well be a situation where the entire scale of who will win the 2007 World Series will be based upon which reliever can we return to late in the game. And if that's the case, (laughs) Ken Giles should be in street clothes. He should be in a suit and tie sitting next to George H.W. Bush and having him grab uh, uh, <laughs> grab Ken Giles's ass from his seat. Look, it. I'm rooting for the Dodgers, but I have no ill will against the Astros. What I really would love to see is a Game Seven, and it sure as hell looks like it's we're going to get one. As I said, all we need all we need is for Kershaw to win his game and Verlander to win his game, and everyone's wish of a Game Seven between two hundred win teams will be come to fruition. We haven't had a deciding game between two 100-win teams in a postseason series since Game 5 of the 1977 American League Championship Series between the Royals and the Yankees. That's the last time that's happened. I don't know when the last time it's happened in the World Series. Do you know why? I'm standing outside a parking lot right now. So, simple. Aces win their games, and we have a full pitching staff of one versus a full pitching staff of two in a game seven and if that's the case unless you want to see a bunch of Astros watch, walk dejectedly off the field keep Ken Giles out of the game well I'm going to watch this game tonight looking forward to it and then up the hill from where I'm looking at right now there'll be a game on Halloween and won't that be cool So go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, Instagram, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, and everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kalisky. Standing outside a locked gate that leads to Dodger Stadium, this is the Sully Baseball Podcast for the 29th day of October 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.